Good morning. Heavenly Father, you know that my personal faith falls far short of the heroes of faith that uh, the author of Hebrews just listed. Um, And though I have every reason to exhibit faith like the faith of the centurion in today's text, even as I prepared the sermon today, my faith has fallen short. I thank you for your grace, which doesn't depend on what I have done, but on who you are. Be with me now, I beg you. Put the words in my mouth and on my lips as I share today's message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our our text today is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And in that text, we have two miracle stories. First, Jesus heals the servant of a centurion at a distance, and shortly after that, he raises the dead son of a widow in Nain back to life. Um, Probably these miracles occurred sequentially in time and space shortly after the Sermon on the Plain, which we just finished with, but More importantly, I think, we need to concentrate on the fact that Luke is concerned with giving us an orderly account in that order that we can be certain about the things that we have been taught. And this thing that we have been taught that he wants us to have certainty about in this case is the Lordship of Christ, just who is this Jesus, and what is the nature of the authority that he possesses? So I'd like you to focus today with me a little bit on the term Lord as it is used in Luke's gospel. And if you'll recall, at the end of the Sermon on the Plain, the Lord provokes uh, his audience with this haunting question. How is it that you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? So in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, whenever the evangelist himself uses the term Lord, he's talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And you may recall that pious Jews, when they would be reading the text of Scripture, when they would come to the Tetragrammaton, Yod, He, Vav, He, they would replace that with the word, rather than trying to pronounce it, would replace that with the word Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. And that's why in your Bible, when there are mentions of the Lord in the Old Testament, often it'll be in all capital letters, and that's because this is uh, that Tetragrammaton, Um, And it was omitted by the Jews out of reverence for the name of God. So in Luke's gospel, though, uh, he, he slips in these references to Jesus as Lord exactly three times before our, um, before our gospel reading today. Um, And always on the lips of someone speaking. The first one that refers to Jesus as Lord is Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, 
who cryptically slips in this reference, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The second vocalization of the term Lord that refers to Jesus in Luke's gospel comes from the angels. As they greet the shepherds and say, today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And finally, Simon Peter, when confronted with an overwhelming catch of fish um, in his boat, tells Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In today's reading, a Gentile soldier humbly acknowledges the authority of Jesus, not only over the faithful of Israel, but over his own pagan household, causing the Lord to marvel at his faith. Now, what is it about this man's faith that amazed the Lord? You know, our Lord was not easily amazed. In fact, there's only two references in all of Scripture of our Lord being amazed. This man, this centurion stranger whom he never met, he was amazed at his faith. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of his neighbors in Nazareth, people he has known all his life, or most of his life. So, what exactly is faith? Well, just before giving us almost a dozen or so examples of faith, the author of Hebrews defines faith. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trust in the faithfulness of the promise maker to keep his promise. The neighbors of Jesus in Nazareth, though they had They were told of the salvation of Israel was at hand. And though they had hoped for this moment for centuries, all their lives, when it arrived, they did not believe it. And yet this centurion, this pagan, who knew nothing about the promises, had never heard the oracles of God, was convinced by what he could see clearly of the invisible attributes of God. That God was willing and able to do something about the condition of his servant. Let's begin with our first few verses. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Well, my first point is that the centurion's faith is not based on self-esteem or some sense of his personal worth, as the Jewish elders would argue, but rather on his understanding that he and his household fell within the purview of God's interest and involvement. Who was this man? And what did he do? Well, we know he was a centurion. And that made him an officer in the Roman army. So, let's talk for a second about the Roman army. It was a mighty army, powerful enough to mow down every other nation's army in its path in the day. Was that because they had superior weapons? No. They did not. They had the same swords, spears, and shields that everyone else had. So what was it that caused the Roman army to win their victories? The Romans won because they were professional soldiers who would not give up and did not accept defeat. Let me tell you how the Roman army was organized. Um, They were organized into legions, and the superior officers or the the senior officers in the legion came from noble families. The legate, the commander of the legion, was a man of senatorial rank. That means he came from a wealthy agricultural family who would have a seat on the Roman Senate. He would have six junior officers called tribunes, and one of them would also be from senatorial, a senatorial rank family, being groomed for command. The other five would be from lesser nobility, the equestrian rank nobility, who would be engaged in profitable mercantile efforts that were um, not uh, permitted to members of the Senate. Um, all of these officers, was, officers would serve in the army for a short time, two years or a handful of years before they would return to their agricultural holdings, their businesses, or other important government posts that they were seeking. So they were tyros in the field of war. The Romans did not win their wars because of their generals. The legionnaires themselves were citizen soldiers. They were from the plebeian class or commoners, and they would serve a career of at least 25 years, maybe more, or for the rest of their life, depending on which came first. Um, These soldiers, when they would distinguish themselves by their faithfulness, discipline, and bravery, could rise to the rank of centurion the officer responsible for leading men into battle. These centurions would be in command of anywhere from 80 to 200 or more citizen soldiers. You can see this 
centurion was a professional soldier who held an intermediate position between the high command and who were transient and and uh, fickle and relatively uninvolved with the legion and the men with whom he lived and of from whom he came Despite his uh, rank and his pay, a centurion was expected to lead his men into battle from the front as a personal example of courage and warlike bravery. So the mortality rate for centurions was higher than for other members of the Roman legion. As a commanding officer, the the centurion faced a problem that's common to all military officers. And that is this, that while violence, bravery, and aggression are prized in battle, this violence has to be managed in order to engage in a disciplined, organized group goal. And so the sign of office for a centurion was a vetus. It was a three-foot vine staff. And he would use it, and he could and did use it for corporal punishment to administer beatings to his men. But beatings only go so far. Um, In battle, the commander had to convince his soldiers to press on even when they were overwhelmed, to endure, if necessary, to die in order to perform their duty. And there comes a point when fear of death overcomes any fear of beating. And when that happens, something more is required. Unit cohesiveness, discipline, pride, loyalty, and a desire for victory must prevail. The natural desire for self-preservation has to yield to ingrained obedience and respect for the commander and his authority that has to be both demonstrated and demanded. This was done by the centurions leading his men in discipline and lifestyle. The identity of his soldiers would become knit with the identity of the group and their comrades, and this identity became more important than their personal survival. In crisis, the centurion had to be able to depend on the unquestioning obedience of the soldiers under his command with no need for persuasion. And this fidelity and obedience must come to be seen as an indispensable moral quality. It seems like in, uh, it was ancient history at the time, but, uh, and it was 50 some years ago, but at the time it had only been 16 years before I sat myself in Thayer Hall listening to a similar speaker in 1962 when General Douglas MacArthur, America's Caesar, spoke his farewell address to the Corps of Cadets at West Point. And he praised these martial martial virtues 
with these words. They teach you to be proud and unbending in honest failure, but humble and gentle in success. Not to substitute words for action, not to seek the path of comfort, but to face the stress and spur of difficulty and challenge, to learn to stand up to the storm, but to have compassion on those who fall. To master yourself before you seek to master others. To have a heart that is clean, a goal that is high. To learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep. To reach into the future, but never forget the past. To be serious, yet never take yourself too seriously. To be modest, so you will remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, the meekness of true strength. It was the faithfulness of her legions to these virtues that allowed Rome to win her wars. This was the glue that held together a mighty empire. The epitome of this fidelity was the Roman centurion. It was this quality that the centurion exhibited which so impressed our Savior. Now, often in remote parts of the empire, um, the centurion would be the most, sen- the most senior legionnaire in the area. And uh, it's likely that this was so in a remote place like Capernaum. Uh, in such a case, he would serve as the official representative, uh, the ambassador, so to speak, of Rome. Because of his position, when the centurion spoke, Rome spoke. Now, notice that the Jewish elders who approached Jesus on behalf of the centurion felt compelled to explain to Jesus that although he might understandably be uninterested in the fate of most Gentiles, this man was a special case because of what he had done for the Jewish people by building them a synagogue. Hadn't they been listening to the sermon the Lord just finished? What he had to say about love for enemies and generosity to the unworthy? See, the centurion expresses no such confidence in his own merit as we read in the following verses. Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Just an aside, this phrase, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and let my servant be healed. You know, that sounds so familiar to me somehow. And that's because I was Catholic for a long time. And every Sunday, 
when I would receive communion, the Lord's Supper, I would recite these words. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Oh, I may not always have thought about those words as deeply as I should have, but they are so sincere. How many of us, as we received the Lord's Supper today, thought about all that had to be forgiven in order that we would be worthy to eat at the Lord's table, to partake of His sacrifice? So, the other thing, of course, you notice that the centurion addresses Jesus as Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself. In doing so, his is the fourth reference to Jesus as Lord in Luke's gospel. After Elizabeth, the angels, and Simon Peter. Pretty good company. The centurion, too, it turns out, recognizes Jesus as his Lord. Now, you may have noticed something a little odd in this passage. Okay. First, the centurion sends the Jewish elders back in chapter 3 and asks Jesus to come and heal his servant. And then by verse 6, he sends his own men to tell Jesus not to come. Sounds almost schizophrenic. That's because there's been a miscommunication. Okay? The Greek text in verse 3 says, and it comes out a little awkward in English, but he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him that after coming, he might save the servant of him. The translation read, he sent him to him, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And you think, well, it means the same thing, right? Uh, after coming, Jesus might save his servant. We understand that the same way that the Jewish elders and our translators did. Um, if Jesus will come, presumably to the centurion's house, then he can heal the centurion's servant. But that's not what the centurion said. And it turns out that's not what the centurion meant. Jesus, after coming to the city of Capernaum, which he had already done, could hear about the plight of the centurion's servant from the Jewish leaders, and then, if he so choose, he could heal that servant. So my second point is this. The centurion reasons that Jesus' authority comes not from his performance of miracles and signs, but because of his position and responsibility. Notice that with his second delegation, the centurion sends friends, presumably men under his command, in arms. Um, and notice that these men speak not for him, uh, not about him like the Jewish leaders do, but for him. It's just as if the centurion himself were present, although he clearly is not. I I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Because these men are under the command and are therefore an extension 
of the centurion what they say he says. If you remember back in verse 5, we learned that the centurion built a synagogue in Capernaum. But I bet you didn't wonder how he did that. Remember I told you that the the centurion was a common man, a a plebeian. Um, And although he made a good salary, uh, he was not wealthy. Okay, Members of the Roman Senate, in order to be considered a a senatorial rank, had to have uh, assets in excess of 200,000 denarii. And to be considered of noble rank, you had to have 100,000 denarii. The day's wage for a man in Jesus' day was one denarius per day. And the centurion, the, the soldiers would make a little bit less than that, probably because they were fed um, by their, um, at their mess. Um, so their, their annual uh, rate of pay was 225 denarii per year. So if the centurion saved every nickel he made in 25 years of service, he wouldn't have enough to qualify to the lowest rank of the nobility. And it was the nobility who built all the buildings, who funded the building projects in Rome. So how did the centurion have the capital to build a synagogue for these people? Well, when you consider that the cost of building depends mostly on the manpower, more so than the materials even today, you know, this centurion had at his disposal oh, somewhere between 80 and 200 or more men. And, uh, you know, it seems likely that he used the manpower of his troops to build that synagogue. Um, see, after a day's march, when the Roman, Roman legion would stop, they would build a fortification. And they had to be prepared to do that quickly if there was any danger that they would be under attack. So building was part of the discipline and training that Roman soldiers did, and, and certainly uh, Roman centurions were known to have uh, engaged in building projects such as temples to foreign deities to win the hearts and minds of the local population. You see, um, maintenance of the peace of Rome was in the interest of the empire, and if in the centurion's estimation as the senior commander... This was something that would benefit Rome. He had the full faith and power of the Roman Empire behind him to engage in such a building project. So in this situation, the centurion likens himself, his own position as a representative of Rome, to Jesus' position as a representative of Almighty God. If Jesus as God's representative, deemed that to be within God's interest to heal the centurion servant, then Jesus had all the resources of God at his disposal to see to it that such a healing occurred. That's the nature of the centurion's faith. But how does the centurion know that God has any interest in the fate of his pagan servant? Wasn't Yahweh the God of Israel alone? The centurion gets his assurance, his confidence, not from what he's seen or heard, but directly from his own inner perception of the sovereignty and power of God. 
Luke chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who were sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The centurion reasons that sickness and death are not restricted to the people of Israel. He knew that God makes the sun rise and set on the evil and the good, and that he sends his rain on the honest and the dishonest. And any God, he reasoned, who's sovereign over sickness and death is a God whose sovereignty is not restricted by ethnicity. He acknowledged that the God of Israel had authority in his own home, authority that neither he nor the Roman emperor could ever possess. Moreover, just as he, a Roman centurion, had the authority to harness the power of Rome for a public works project in support of a foreign deity, so he reasons, does Jesus have the authority to use the power of God in the home of a pagan? Just as the centurion's right to exercise his power stemmed not from personal qualities of his own, but rather from his humble status as a servant of Rome. Humility and authority flow from the same font. So Jesus, humbly, as an extension of God Almighty, also had that authority. What Jesus says, God says. What God says, it's your duty to do. And the centurion understood duty. Duty is something you do whether you want to do it or not. That's something hard to understand today when sometimes a man's word isn't worth the paper it's printed on. And it was something the centurion understood. But the stiff-necked people of Israel time and time again demonstrated that they did not understand. And it sometimes is something that we demonstrate that we don't understand. Just as Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you do not do what I say? The crowds that pressed in around Jesus would hope to steal a blessing by touching him. Yet this pagan knew that the blessings of Jesus flowed from his hands as he saw fit to distribute them. This centurion had faith in Jesus without seeing him, without touching him, without witnessing the performance of his miracles, as Peter would later put it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The centurion's faith was not based on self-esteem or any sense of personal worth, but rather on his recognition that he and his household fell within the sphere of God's interest and involvement. He reasoned that the authority of Jesus came not from performance of miracles, but by his position and responsibility as a representative of Almighty God. And finally, the centurion got his assurance, his confidence, not from what he had seen or heard, but directly from his own inner perception of the sovereignty and power of God. Well, 
I didn't leave much time to talk about the widow from Nain, did I? Um, let me read that to you just briefly. Um, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now there's a lot we could say about this episode but I just want to focus on how this narrative continues the focus of expanding understanding about the Lordship of Christ. You probably noticed the way I read it, this is the first time that Luke himself, in the narrative, not in dialogue, refers to Jesus as Lord in verse 13. This is a trend that will continue. Secondly, I'd like you to compare this episode to an episode in the Old Testament narrative in which Elijah raises the dead child of a widow to life. This would be 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, felt, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you done against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him, in, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This is an obvious parallel being made to this episode in Luke's gospel. In fact, when he says that Jesus gave him to his mother, he uses the exact same words that are used in the Old Testament narrative to describe the return of the widow's son, dead son, to her um, now alive. This is the source of the awe and wonder of the onlookers who declare that a great prophet has arisen among us, a prophet like Elijah. But did you notice how Elijah has to stretch himself on the child three times and beg the Lord for the return of the child's life? In Luke's account, there is no stretching. There is no begging. There is Jesus' word of command, get up. 
and the child rises. So, apparently, the authority of Jesus reaches not only into the household of the Gentiles, but beyond the grave itself. And so, some of them began to recognize that something more had happened here, declaring God has visited his people. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your honor and your power and your glory reside not with an angel, nor to just any man, but to this man, our Lord, your only begotten Son, the commander of the armies of the Lord. Our great centurion, who demands the impossible, but leads from the front, showing us, by his example, what can and what must be done. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In his great name we pray.